Colin Price is the Executive Vice President and Global Managing Partner at Heinrich and Struggles. I was in DeVos for the World Economic Forum and found Colin Price, met him actually in a parking lot where we started this interview. You're listening to the Insight to Action podcast for innovation, business innovation, and business innovative thinkers, and my name is Donna Jones. So what I first asked Colin about in this parking lot was about complexity because he has an intriguing angle on it. Colin, I'm curious because you've done an interesting thing with complexity. You've, you've you may use it to make sense out of some of the things that people cannot make sense of in the world today, Brexit being one of them, yeah. the election of Donald Trump being another one, although it does make sense to a certain percentage of people, to the rest of us were mystified. Perplexed. Yes, absolutely perplexed. Can you can you expand a bit on, on the role of complexity in, in these uh, phenomena? Yeah, so if you think from a business point of view about a curve that's shaped like a normal distribution curve, it, it starts on the bottom left, it goes up, and then it goes back down again. So every business, as it's growing, gets value out of adding more complexity. So if you just imagine a company based in Birmingham, Alabama, and it produces a bicycle, only one bicycle, and it only markets to the local area. So as it adds a second type of bicycle or opens a new branch somewhere else, that kind of added complexity is a good thing because it enables it to be successful. There is some point, though, where adding more and more complexity produces diminishing returns and then negative returns. It actually damages the business. And I think what we found in our research is that for a lot of big organizations, as you'd expect, they're beyond the midpoint. They're into the point where they're getting negative returns. And I think that was kind of always an underlying business thing. But what's happened, and I think we see it in Brexit and Trump and some other dynamics in the world, is that the, the kind of consumer or, or citizen tolerance for complexity has gone down. And, and, you know, you can think about it in a very micro way, which is if you want to change the bank that you bank with, it's murder. <laughs> you don't want to spend four hours doing all sorts of things. If you want to change your Wi-Fi provider, uh, if you want to uh, go and buy a car, you, you're, you've got perplexing degrees of choice and complexity. And people are kind of fed up of it. So we're seeing this two factors. On the one hand, the good business sense tells you not to keep investing in complexity beyond the point at which it produces returns. And then the other is that consumers, citizens, you know, taxpayers, voters want less complexity in their life. You know, and so you look at some of the organizations that are iconic today. You know, Google has managed to find a way of creating sense and simplicity. Same for Apple. So, so let me then, let's just decompose complexity a little bit. If you just think of your, your company, there's four levels, and I think of them a bit like an iceberg. So the most obvious form of complexity is that the product shelf is too wide. The stuff you do, you've got too many bicycles, right? too many pension funds, too many kinds of current accounts. Underneath that, that tends to drive complexity in processes and systems. The IT systems don't talk to each other. The way we do stuff in different countries or different divisions don't jive with each other. Underneath that, you've then got, because you've got a very complex product shelf, very complex systems and processes, you end up with an incredibly complex organization structure. You know, lots of barons and fiefdoms and matrix and dotted lines, and no one can do anything, anything because there's just hundreds of other people to talk to. And then underneath that, when all that happens, you get complex mindsets. You get people and culture that's just used to complexity. It's just the way we have to do business. Well, it isn't. You know, some guy or gal in a garage on the West Coast is right now thinking of a way of using technology to dramatically disintermediate your business. So businesses need to kind of get to grips with that before it happens to them and find a way of radically simplifying and decomplexifying their structures. First of all, let me roll back a bit and say sure. that Dr. Irvin Laszlo has explained that we're in the middle of a bifurcation yeah. of consciousness. It's a systems theory that says the complexities have gotten to a point yeah. where the linear approach to thinking it through no longer works. Yeah. That it's not a matter of the next cycle. Yeah. It's actually a completely different way of seeing the world. Yeah. Yet we've got um, the majority, I would say, of executives that are really well trained in linear thinking. Yeah. And so they're just going to see it through that lens. How do you get through to them? And, and what, is the, what is the hook? What, what is the inspiration for them to shift their thinking and widen it a bit and well, use more of what they've got? I, I, I'd have to say I've done a whole bunch of interviews in Davos, and that's the best question I've ever been asked. 
Well, lovely, it, it, thank you. It, it's a profound question with profound answers and, of course, many areas that we can't answer. But I think your hypothesis is right. We've trained, in addition to my work at Hydric, I, I lecture at uh, Oxford, and we generally have trained managers to think in a linear way. You know, A causes B, therefore I'll do more or less of A. And we, we live in a, in a world which is just far more interconnected and complex than that. Someone said to me this morning, we're used to living with an unpredictable future, but now we're living with an unpredictable present. Right? And so in that world, there's a bit of that complexity that could be understood by linear thinking, kind of using the intellect to understand the forces of play. But many of the outcomes are things that no matter how good your linear models are, you just wouldn't predict the outcome. We live in an age of the end of, of, of predictability. So you need something else to create stickiness in an organization between the, the customers and the company and between the company and the employees. And that's more around storytelling, emotional attract, attraction, truth and honesty. Not, I will do this and I will make you richer. But this, you will become a richer person by being here, by being a consumer of us, by being an employee with us. So it, it's far more emotional skills. In addition, I'm not saying that there is no room for intellectual skills, of course there are, but there's a far higher demand now for creating meaning for people, both consumers and employees. Okay, so the first time I chatted with Colin, we were in a parking lot in Stos, and now we are actually on the phone, which is much, uh, much better. And, and the last conversation we had was about how to engage executives in the transformation of their companies to really adapt to complexity and speed uh, with, with a higher de degree of fluency. So, Colin, let's just uh, continue our conversations. And, and I want to ask you, how would you approach a narrative that will resonate with boomer executives who have their eyes on their pensions? So a great question. Not, not an easy answer. I mean, in the question, I think, is the difficulty which is how, how do you get people to do what they know is right, but is not immediately apparently in their interest, right? So I think we have a little bit of good news and a little bit of bad news, really. Um, so the good news is that almost all the executives I've met in 30 years of doing this kind of work do care not only about their company, but perhaps more importantly about their customers. Now, the more divorced you get from customers, the more difficult it is to care about them. But I think it's a reasonable generalization to say that most executives genuinely care about doing a good job and, and meeting the needs of their customers. So if uh, a change process, a change architecture in a company actually does make things better for customers, you're more likely to be able to engage people with it. Worryingly, many change processes don't. They don't actually make things better for, for customers. And then middle managers are, are described by senior executives as being resistant to change. They're not resistant to change at all. They're resistant to doing things that don't make things better and that may cause loss. So I think that's one kind of building block that's helpful. The second thing that's helpful, but a little bit more difficult to translate into action, is that, of course, the, you know, the pensions that they're watching in your question are the outcomes of economic generation by companies. The, by far the dominant investment portfolio of pension funds is equities. And within equities, it's essentially dividend yield that pays off the pension funds. So, statement to the obvious, but for those pensions to be in healthy shape, we need the instruments of economic surplus generation, otherwise known as companies, to be in healthy shape. And then you, you think to yourself, well, fine, but how far off being healthy is the economic performance of companies? And there, you know, it's one of those things that's incredibly difficult to measure and it compares to what, but in the way that we measure it, the, we, we looked at 1,700 companies, and across those companies, there's economic productivity opportunities of at least 30% on average. Some of them are terrific, and they have a smaller opportunity. Some are a very long way away from being in good shape, and they have a bigger opportunity, but on average, it's about 30%. And I think you know people just know that 
intuitively from wandering around organizations, you see all sorts of stuff stopping people being productive, all sorts of behaviors and cultural stuff, but also technology and digitization attempts that haven't been productive or could be more productive. So I think it's pretty intuitively obvious that there is a big improvement opportunity in the way that we run human systems. And I'm only talking here about kind of commercial entities. When you turn to state-sponsored enterprises or charitable enterprises or religious or political enterprises, they themselves have their opportunities. So I, I think it's clear to most people that things could get better. It's also clear to people that if things did get better, that could be better for customers. That's the good news. (laughs) The bad news is it is indeed difficult to engage someone who might be in their, well, I'm 58, right? I've been doing this for a long time. If if a company said to me, you know, we want you to do another round of change, it is difficult to be energetic about doing that when you've done 20 in the last 30 years. But nonetheless, that is what, you know, that's why we've got leaders. You know, if leaders can't engage their people to get enthusiastic about radical change, then I'd question whether those leaders are the right one. So definitely a challenge, not impossible, requires a very high level of leadership capability. One of the other things I noticed that you mentioned in the book was is about the high cost of management. So the book, just to be specific for listeners, is, is called Accelerating Performance, How to mobilize, execute, and transform with agility. All of those words are words that you'd hear in a traditional organization, but I know your book takes a, a different tack to it. So I, I also noticed that you, you've included Gary Hamill and, and Michelle, Michelle Zanin's statistics. Uh, that is that the U.S. economy will grow by $3 trillion simply if you remove unnecessary managers. That means tough decisions lie ahead. So, so from your point of view, what makes it easier for managers in these places? Because we talk about managers as if they're not listening. But what makes it easier for them to accept this kind of news and reinvent themselves? Yeah, so actually in the previous book that was called Beyond Performance, um, Gary Hamill was nice enough to write the foreword for that. And we, we did some work together and uh, along with Michelle, uh, who was also in McKinsey as I was at that time. And that's where that statistic came from. In, in this book, we, we've, interestingly, we've ended up in the same place, but using a different measurement method, but, but a very consistent outcome. And most simply, if you look at, just take all the organiza- big organizations in the world, we took the FT500 biggest listed companies, and you divide them into five quintiles based on organic growth. So the top quintile is growing like crazy, the middle quintile is, you know, puffing along, and the bottom quintile is shrinking like crazy. And you just draw a line that says, okay, this is the organic growth rate of these different quintiles. And then you measure the number of managers in those organizations as a ratio to non-managerial staff. So not as an absolute number, but as a ratio to non-managerial staff. What you find is that the the highest growth quintile companies, the ones that are really rocking and rolling in terms of organic growth, where you might think, you know, they're doing terrific stuff, it's paying off, they must have amazing managers and lots of them. Actually, they have just under 23% less managers as a ratio than the bottom quintile organizations. And, it, and it's clear at each stage, obviously, there are five quintiles, and as you go from the bottom to the second one to the third one, fourth one, fifth one, the number of managers as a ratio to non-managerial staff falls at each level. So that's pretty clear. You know, the, the thing about doing this kind of social science research is you, you usually get a lot of findings and you don't quite know what to make of them. But in this case, it's pretty darn clear. When you then say, okay, if you could take the bottom quintile and make them average, the fourth quintile and make them the same as the second quintile, etc. So you move each quintile up until you get to the second one where you just hold it stable. And if in doing that, they could reduce the ratio of managerial to non-managerial employees in the same way, you get to a number pretty similar to Gary and Michelle's number. So it's a very different way of thinking about it, but you, you get to the same place. 
good companies have less managers. Now, the second part of your question is where the rub lies, which is, okay, I mean, I think conceptually, you know, everyone can get their head around that. If, you, if you've got an, a very capable set of managers, surely you need less of them than if you don't. So then you get into a pretty existential question, which is any organization that's being driven forward with enough pace and urgency will say, well, if, you know, if we've got too many managers and we can take some out, we absolutely should do. And, you know, if that produces better shareholder returns, which in turn feeds into pensions and all the rest of benefit for society, generally the rest of society would want to see less managers, not so people lose their job, but so people move into different uh, businesses and we can grow the productive capability of the economy. That's all fine, but when it comes down to the individual, you know, if, if you're in an organization that isn't one of these superlative performers and someone says to you, you know, we should have 23% less of you, that's highly problematic. So it raises two questions. One, how do you get your managers to be better? You can't just take the managers out and assume it will be fine. The, the business could collapse if you haven't invested in the capability building to create an extraordinary group of leaders. So there's, there's hard yards to be won first before you get the economic benefit. Second is, even if you can get that done with all the energy and effort and cost involved in doing that, you've then got a real tiger to, to tackle because the managers who are there today don't want to have 23% less, uh, and there will be resistance to that. Now, this is where actually most senior leadership does come in. You, you can't reasonably expect managers in a large organization to jump for joy at the prospect of the, there being less of them. But this is why the most senior leaders do need to have a kind of radical view of the future of the organization, which is not just bumping along and doing a bit more of the same. So it is undoubtedly you know, a huge challenge, but it's also got a huge prize. It's, I've just talked about the, the straightforward cost benefit of having 23% less people. But the, the other aspect of that is if you've got less managers, you know what? Stuff gets done quicker. There are less layers, there's less bureaucracy, less committees, less risk syndication, and, and greater clarity of decision-making capability. So it's certainly a good place to get to, both from a cost point of view and from an agility point of view. The challenges in getting there is why we need the senior leaders in organizations to have, as I say, a radical vision for their organization and a very cogent set of things that they can do, interventions that they can make that would achieve that vision. It's not a particularly easy invitation for, for anyone at a personal level, but I, I think it's essential that we sort of look at it from the one scale to the, to the next, from, from the big picture down to what it means to the individual. So thank you. I'm kind of intrigued because we talked initially when we started this conversation in, in the parking lot in Davos, it was about complexity and Brexit and Trump and how these, you know, the overwhelming weight of complexity is causing people to think simply. And in this book, you're talking about acceleration and accelerating. It's a good idea, but, but of course, we know that a lot of people in business will say, well, let's just do more of what we're already doing, but we'll just do it faster. I'm pretty sure that's not what you meant. So what did you really mean? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, allow me a little diversion first. So what, one of the things we talk about in the book is what we call the acceleration trap. Um, and that is indeed when people fall into that. Um, that trap that you just mentioned of saying we can accelerate our company just by everybody walking faster or doing a little bit, speaking faster, uh, having less people copied on emails. You know, it doesn't really, I mean, maybe those things are marginally helpful, but it doesn't really get you anywhere. What we really mean by acceleration is the ability to be agile or to pivot the organization from one way of working to a different way of working. Now, that different way of working may be a genuine kind of transformational change in the, in the fundamental operating model of the company. And I've, I've seen a few of those where a company goes from being asset heavy to asset light, or a company that goes from 
um, using its own staff to using external contractors or vice versa. So sometimes it's a kind of fundamental the way we do business. And then other times it's more prosaic, which is, I mean, it, they, they sound tedious examples, but you just look at how long does, it, does your organization take to hire somebody from, from the moment that the, the line manager says, I need a new person, to the moment that they arrive, how long is that? In, in our sample, and I, I'd have to say this, this bit of it wasn't incredibly robust, but I think it's close enough to give a feel for it. The, the average time was just over five months. Um, and you can see why, you know, lots of people have to interview them, they have to go through um, aptitude tests, they have to, the references have to be checked, there's a whole kind of process and you can get your head around why it might take that long. But if you stand back and say, well, you know, is that a good way of doing business? It, it's clearly not. And another, you know, very prosaic example, how long does it take to set the budget for your business? You, you would expect it to be a robust uh, almost argumentative process so that you, you use tension and productive conflict to get to a good answer. But, but nevertheless, most organizations start that budget process somewhere like September or October. Many of them don't get it finished until January or February or March. And in the first quarter, people are pulling their hair out and saying, what, what, what on earth is happening here? I have no idea where we're going. It's it's very trivial even, but it's incredibly frequent, and the world is full of these kind of examples. So, so it's, have these two things in your mind. The, the prosaic stuff is just how can we cut through the the kind of bureaucracy that's attendant in large organisations and get stuff done on a day-to-day -day basis a bit quicker. And then the other one is rather more fundamental, which is. And how do we sense market opportunities and indeed competitive threats and shift our modus operandi to a new way of operating sooner than the competitive threats hit us rather than later? Now, the reason why they're linked is it's really difficult to do that second one if you haven't done the first one. If your normal way of operating is to take months when you could take weeks, or where the average meeting has got 12 people in it, but only three people speak. These small behavioral conditioning elements then reduce your capability of pivoting your organization in a more fundamental way. So that, that's why we use acceleration rather than agility. Agility conveys for me the ability to pivot from one mode of operation to the other mode of operation and is absolutely critical. And as you nicely read out the, the name of the full name of our book, you know, we do use the, the agility word as a kind of kicker in the formula of mobilize, execute and transform with agility. But it's not just agility. The moment that you require agility, you'll find that if your basic kind of muscle memory of how we do things around here is a very slow and laborious one. There's no point then just screaming at the organization and saying we need to be agile. If you've, if you've got 4,000 products and you should only have 500 products, the, the breadth of that product shelf is just going to slow you down in creating new value propositions. If you haven't integrated technology platforms from previous acquisitions, then forget about participating in the digital revolution. The, the small mundane things have a profound impact on the larger transformational things. So we mean both of those. But you're absolutely right to point out what we don't mean is just, you know, take everything you do and do it 10% faster because that would be a good thing to do. That, that's a kind of blind approach to, to agility. Well, and it, it also just generates greater fatigue in the organization, both intellectually and intuitively, because people are already trying to understand how complexity fits into all this and how they fit into complexity. So uh, I appreciate that uh, you breaking that down for us. One of the things that came out in, in Davos was the from the Financial Times, I believe it was, was the idea that complexity is, uh, and we talked about this with respect to linear thinking versus a, a, a big, the bigger, wider lens, the risk of assuming that complexity is a, just a passing cycle. What's your take on that? I, I've learned over the years to have at least some humility about um, about predictions 
Um, I, I remember, I don't know, 30 years ago, people were predicting that the, the rise in population would lead to um, a very uh, dramatic consequences, and to some extent it has through climate change. And then I, I remember the predictions when we we were kind of moving towards automation of UK car factories, and there would be no employment left on this small wet island off the coast of Europe. And, and there's just been prediction after prediction, many of which have found out over time to be tempered with reality. So I'm cautious about making this prediction. But nevertheless, I, I do think that the overplayed benefit of everything tends to lead to a negative. And the benefit of what's happened in the 50 years, in the last 50 years, has been choice. The, the amount of choice available to us has, I've not measured this, but it's dramatically increased. Literally, choice in restaurants, choice in your mobile phone uh, provider, choice in the range of financial products that you might have. You, you know, you go back to when I was growing up, you know, your choice was a football or three channels on TV. And now the choice for my kids is almost infinite. Now, that's been a good thing in many, many ways. We, we've gone from a kind of bland, standard fare, literally in terms of food in the UK, to far more diversity. And, and that's partly come from the diversity of, of, of people in various in countries and companies. There's just far more creative clash and melding of different perspectives. So that's terrific. However, uh, an unintended consequence of all that choice is just the complexity that we all have to deal with. And it, it's most easily thought about in terms of simple consumer complexity. I've no idea how I would change all my banking arrangements. It would be a major project for the next several weeks. The thoughts, the thought of me, I'm sitting here with a phone, a computer, and a, a, a tablet, uh, and, a, and a cell phone in front of me, and they all link together and they, they speak to each other in some kind of clever way. And if I was to change that from one ecosystem to a different ecosystem, uh, I fear that my life would collapse as, as I try and port all of that. So I, just like everyone else, I'm, I'm feeling a kind of reaction to all this choice and, uh, and a desire for simplicity. Now, <laughs> the issue is, on which side of complexity is simplicity? Is it simplicity on the other side of complexity? So if I think about my ecosystem, that the provider of this technology has made it wonderfully simple for me because they've embraced the complexity of data and music and, and, uh, and photos and everything else. And they've, they've, create, they've embraced that, they've understood it, and they've gone to the other side of that complexity and they've produced a beautifully simple operating model for me? Or is it, the, is it simplicity this side of complexity, which is we just, we, it's just too complicated to cope with, so I'm only going to give you three choices or one choice. Now, the, the, the problem is just because there's a reaction to complexity doesn't mean that a very simple answer is the right answer. If you're, if you're a bank or a, an insurer, or you know, like everyone else, we wish the world was more simple, but it isn't and it's not going to get any more simple. Regulator, supervisory environment is going to get tougher and more stringent as, as we go on. Consumers have more and more active views about what you're doing, not just the products they buy from you, but what kind of company you are. Are you, are you standing behind diversity initiatives? Where, where do you stand on fair trade? Where do you stand on uh, climate change? Consumers have a legitimate opinion about all of those things. So despite a desire for simplicity, the world in which we operate in is, is, is complex, and my bet would be that it would get more rather than less complex. So the trick is not to fall for an easy answer, an, an easy view of, you know, I just, I just do this one thing and the world gets better, a kind of silver bullet view. And I think in the political world, perhaps we're seeing, you know, some popularist response to simple answers. Personally, I don't think they're going to work. They, they may be simple, but I fear that they're also simplistic answers and they won't produce the outcome. In terms of leaders, 
Leaders do need to help their people operate with simplicity, but not by denying the complexity that's there. But, but they do need to, when you look at, I often look at organization structures and, and leaders will lay out their organization structure for me on a, on a whiteboard. And it will look perfectly reasonable. But when you go and you talk to 20 or 30 people and you, you map out what the structure actually is, it's fiendishly complicated and you'd, you'd have to be a nuclear scientist to be able to work out how to make that work. So it, it's not pretending, the answer is not pretending that the world is simple and let's just go for a simple idea. The answer is to understand the complexity of the world and to break through that in a way that produces simplicity that serves other people, serves our consumers and customers, and also serves our colleagues because it provides an environment in which they can operate. So I hope I've not fallen into my own trap and given you too simple an answer there, Dorna, but <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that's the way I think about it. Yeah. No, I don't think so, but I think what, what you've nailed is the fact that it's very tempting to take complexity and oversimplify it, and yet it does, you know, working with complexity has simple principles. They're very fundamental and, and unifying principles, but it's a big, it's a quite different from oversimplification, which, which has been the uh, tendency to you know, that's been the fallback position. Take that instead of stepping in and, and um, you know, evolving with with complexity and understanding how to work with it from a leadership or any other role. So you, there's a lot of illusions that are in the C-suite that are blocking business preparation, you know, readiness for the radical change we've got going on. What are the top ones? I started life as an economist and then I, I migrated into being a psychologist and that I, I think it 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 kind of uh, influences the way that I would see that that question which is that you, you can point at many obvious problems that businesses have got all of those come from the kind of mental palaces that we construct uh, our mindsets and belief systems so so let me start with a few of the obvious problems, but then I'll, I'll go into um, what might lie underneath those. So let's just start with arguably the most obvious. Every business in the world needs to produce terrific quality service, but it also needs to get cost to be low. That's always been true. It's probably even more true now because technology is allowing new entrants without the legacy cost structure to disintermediate businesses. The obvious ones are Airbnb and Uber, but there are, there are many, many others where a fintech startup doesn't have the, the cost of the legacy brand system or regulatory requirements and can cherry pick your customers or your product set. Same is true in insurance. We're seeing a rise in, in the equivalent of fintech and insurance. You find brand new competitors sprouting out of technology parks in Cambridge in the UK or in uh, two or three centers in China now who have got access to world-class technology without having to have 100,000 people. Same is true in pharmaceuticals, you know, particular uh, therapies or uh, gene chains are being developed in very small development houses without having to employ the same kind of staffing structure as uh, Novartis or Shire or any of the others. So the fundamental problem for any business today is that the there are lower and lower barriers to entry. Uh, we used to think of some industries like airlines, you know, how could anyone possibly afford to start a new airline? Well, we learned about 15 years ago that that was not such a smart way of thinking about it. So any business now is being attacked, not just by traditional competitors, but by crazy new wacky ideas coming from left field, usually enabled by technology. So in, in response to that, businesses have got you know, three fundamental challenges. One is, can we be an attacker? Can we identify value opportunities, profit pools that we're not currently in? And can, we, can the elephant dance, given that we've got 50,000 or 100,000 people, can we create an attacking unit that goes after the profit pools of others? Second question it's got is how, how on earth do I defend? How, how, do I, how do I get advantage from my scale and I don't just end up being picked off 
uh, in multiple ways. And there are ways of doing that. If you're a larger company, you've generally got a broader product suite. If you can link that together in a way that makes sense for the customer, I was, I was just talking about the technology in front of me, then customers are well inclined to buy a, an integrated ecosystem rather than a set of monoline offerings. So that's the second challenge. The third challenge is how do I get my organization, the people in my organization, to move at the same pace as our competitors, current and future, and as of the market. And we, you know, we know obviously it's more difficult for a big organization to move at pace than a small organization. That used to be okay because it was only the big organizations competing with each other. Now the big organizations are competing with little organizations and they move frighteningly fast. Hence the, the shift to acceleration. Now, underneath those, though, I mean, you, you know, you could draw out, an MBA student could draw out on a page a pretty good answer to any of those questions conceptually. But what is it that stops us doing that? And here you kind of come to the human condition, which I find is often magnified when groups of people come together. So, you know, how do we respond to competitors who are cherry picking bits of our business? Well, it depends how we think about the world, right? If we, if we think about them as we're in control, they'll never matter, we end up where Nokia ended up, right? They, they were perfectly aware of, of the technology trends and everyone in their garages trying to come up with a solution. They owned the vast majority of the profit pool for mobile phones and complacency stopped them responding. I, I think they probably could have had the capability of responding, but they didn't do it because they didn't feel a sense of urgency and vulnerability. So in that sense, what you want in, an, in individuals is to be kind of productively paranoid, to, to worry that someone's always trying to eat your lunch, because in organizational terms, they are. Now, when you get groups of people together you know, one, one would hope that complacency reduces rather than increases. However, that's not the case. Generally, our, our less positive characteristics take center stage. And groups of people, and this has been measured by lots of very good uh, social scientists, including Daniel Kahneman in his, in his wonderful book, Thinking Fast and Slow, when you put groups of people together, they tend to exacerbate the worst characteristics rather than the best characteristics. They spend their time infighting rather than dealing with the enemy outside. So that, that mental state affects the, the economic output of the organization. If you, if you look at the, the, the need for organizations to, be, to move with greater agility, what gets in the way of that? Why, why can't we just have shorter meetings with less people in them and more authority for decision making? Well, there's a bunch of stuff that gets in the way. One is most organizations are still run on the basis that the leader is the boss. The leader tells other people what to do. The idea of servant leadership, that the leader is there to help his or her followers achieve more impact is often spoken about, but infrequently actioned. And that, that command and control mental model roots people to, I won't move unless the boss tells me, tends not to be a great formula for winning in a, in a competitive environment. So I, I think kind of we've seen the enemy and it is us. It, it, is, it is not the circumstances we're in, they are competitive and we, we compare them to 50 years ago and we say it's incredibly competitive today. People in 50 years time will be looking at these times today and say, gosh, how slow and comfortable that was. So, so that's, that's just a concept. What, what needs to be different is the way in which we conceptualize the world and we operate and the way in which we think about human systems. And that we have got a lot of learning to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I appreciate the mention of leadership because from my point of view, the leverage point for all of this transformation, business sustainability is a much higher level of leadership. So can I ask you to offer some tips for executives or emerging leaders on, on just how to become more fluent with complexity, more fluent with, with these pivots 
that we're talking about, both at a macro and a micro level, and, and how to really be quite comfortable with the speed that you just mentioned. Yeah. So this is going to sound like uh, the wrong side of complexity because it is very, very simple, but it, in my view, it's profoundly difficult to do. So in our research, we, we were really interested in, well, we actually tried to answer four questions. The first question was, what enables some organizations to win when others lose? And the answer to that is they, they, they adapt to their environment better. Fine. So question number two is, well, how do they adapt to their environment better? What do they actually do that enables them to do that? And we identified a set of drag and drive factors. And these, these drive factors are what enables an organization to react quickly. And they're things like being intimately, almost obsessively connected to your customers' needs, about having simple organizational processes rather than complex ones. So we looked at those, and then we, we still said, yeah, good. But how come some organizations are good at doing those when others aren't? And we identified four kind of, we call them recipes, but they're, they're archetypes, they're ways of thinking about how your organization might win. And so one recipe is to be a customer intimate. Another recipe is to be a talent magnet. And the winning organizations seem to be quite clear what their recipe was. But then the fourth question, kind of four levels here, was to say, yep, all good. Why, why are some leaders good at doing that and other leaders clearly aren't? And so we got, we got to this question. It took about two years to get there. And what we found, well, what we hypothesized was that the leaders in the top quintile organizations that I referred to earlier, uh, organizations that are growing organically very quickly, do different things than the leaders in the slow growth companies. They're, they're actually shrinking quickly. We were wrong in that hypothesis. They don't do different things. Uh, when, you, when you measure what they do, the overlap is far, far greater than the difference. They all work hard to get the right people on their teams. They all clarify vision or, or direction, whatever they choose to call it. They all try and work to a set of values, etc. All, all these kind of playing cards in the armory of leaders, they, they all try and do, whether they're in the high growth or the low growth company. So what, what is it that's different? The difference is that the, the leaders in the high growth companies are better at doing those things. Okay, that's kind of a bit of a truism. What enables them to be better? What we found was one thing, which is the ability to self-reflect and self-correct. So let me just go into the psychobabble here just for a second. So self-reflect, if, if I said to, to you, Donna, tell me the three things in your life as a leader that you've got most wrong, you would, if you're typical, and we did this on thousands of people, you would tell me three things. They would be true, they would be authentic, and they would be quite distant in time. Because you look back on yourself, 20 years ago, and you can easily identify something that you did that at the time maybe you thought was okay, but now you look on it with reflection and you think, how on earth was I stupid enough to do that? Now, what you're demonstrating there is the ability to self-reflect, but like the rest of us, you tend to reflect more accurately on things a long time ago. Now, as you get closer to today, let, let's take it all the way, which is you 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 do something. You're in a you're in a meeting with a group of peers, or you're you're having a one-on-one -on -one meeting to discuss performance, and you you do something. You you do a leadership act. You raise your voice. You lower your voice. You state a fact. You confront an opinion. Whatever it might be, but your ability to spot that that wasn't quite the right thing to do while doing it, and then self-correct. So that's the self-reflect bit. And then self-correct is the ability to have a broad enough repertoire that you say, hold on, this isn't quite right. I'm going to shift from A to B. That's what determines great leadership. Now, it sounds stupid. It sounds incredibly simplistic. 
but there are two big challenges in it. In the first one, the ability to look at your own behavior and say, I haven't quite got that right, not 20 years ago, but right now, that requires deep humility. It requires a learning mindset. It requires a, an orientation that says, I'm not always right. In fact, many of the times I'm wrong and I'm on a journey to get better as a leader. And it's not a case of persuading other people to do what I tell them to do. It's a case of me finding in myself the thing that can be most helpful to other people. So that, that level of humility and questioning is sometimes evident in senior leaders and is sometimes missing. And then the second bit of it is the ability to correct once you've reflected. And that requires a broad repertoire if you've raised your voice, it requires that you know how to influence by lowering your voice. If you've confronted an opinion, it also requires that you, you know how to influence by building rather than confronting. And that range or repertoire of behaviors tends to narrow as you get to the more senior roles. Interestingly, we, I think we have an imperfect way of measuring this, but in our analysis, it tends to narrow as you get towards chief executive level as the roles become more and more specialized. But at the very top, general manager, chief executive, chairperson, it tends to broaden again as you interact with a very varied group of stakeholders around you. So what I'd say to any leader that's trying to be exceptional is cultivate those two, we, we call them the two wings on a bird. So neither one is more important than the other. You can't fly without both of them. But cultivate both of those. Cultivate the ability to self-reflect in the moment, and maybe that's a bit difficult to start with, but then reflect on last week, and then reflect on yesterday, and then reflect on two hours ago. But really challenge yourself and say, what could I have done better? And if your answer is nothing, you're, you're asking the wrong person, right? Have a hard look in the mirror, and really think about what you can do to tune up your capability. And then think about, how, is your repertoire too narrow? Are you, do you have a particular strength in being challenging, productively confrontational, tough-minded, terrific? But do you have a corresponding weakness in building, creating coalitions, creating engagement? And if the answer is yes, then pay some attention to your own development needs. So I'd say it's not, you know, spend more time with your team or... Uh, have the vision written on the wall. Those, those things, to be honest, are not that difficult to work out and most managers know what to do. It's your ability to do it that requires more work. And that's a deeply personal journey. It certainly is. And I, I really appreciate the uh, the insight that you've brought to that because it, it, it goes back to, to what I've been saying for quite a while now, that is that is that we are the people we've been waiting for with the answers, but we just have to go much, much deeper than we have so far. So I think that's the opportunity that complexity provides us with. And this accelerated disruptive change, it, it, it sort of says you can't stay where you were. It's It's a huge invitation to go deep. So thank you. Excellent. Good. Colin, anything else you want to add? We're, you know, the book is out. It's in the regular places. Anything else, any, any other information you care to share with the audience? Well, th thank you for the opportunity and thank you for mentioning the book. It is very helpful to me. I mean, the, the only other thing I'd, I'd say is that this, it, this is a noble cause, right? This is a genuine, I don't mean the book, I, I mean this conversation and and your other conversations, a, a genuine investigation into what makes human systems effective. We, we run our planet on, by human systems. You know, all wealth is created by groups of people doing things. All hospitals are, are run. All drugs are invented. All charities are, are staffed by human systems. And I personally believe they are fantastically underperforming. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, a, there's a very big gap here for us to deliver better outcomes for, you know, for our children. So, and I, this is a new science that we're working on. You know, uh, my, my colleagues who are mathematicians or physicists will look at, you know, social sciences and say, you know, talk to me when you've reached your first century. 
we're, we're maybe 50 years into this, so we're absolutely in the foothills of science. But I, w- I would say that when I started this work 30 years ago compared to today, we know a lot more today. We, we, we felt in our bones 30 years ago that if you can get the behavioral stuff right, performance would follow, but it was just an opinion. Now we have terrific empirical work done to a forensic standard, and we know that if you get the people stuff right, performance is more likely. What we don't know <laughs> is how to do that, right? We're, we're still developing the, the data mining and statistical tools that allow us to isolate which variable makes the biggest difference. I'm not sure we will know it in the remaining 10 or 20 years I'll be working, but it's a hugely important question, it's a profoundly important question. It, it determines the education we'll give to our children and the healthcare we'll provide to our parents. So I, I just I congratulate you for being authentically engaged in this topic. And if I can help again in the future, I'd love to. Well, thank you very much. And I will definitely uh, take you up on that. For the benefit of our listeners, I think what I'm going to do is suggest three things. One, the systems view of life by Fritoff Capra maps out the systemic evolutionary theory that really explains just what you just finished saying. It's the empirical stuff, how it all relates. So that's that's the most comprehensive book. It's his most recent book. It was published last spring. I'd also encourage people to go to What is Reality, the first interview in this podcast series with Irvin Laszlo, where he explains exactly what you just finished talking about, Colin, where the linear trajectory of evolution in the humanity system is collapsing and opening up space for us to be far deeper, far more co-creative, to, to really design what we want. And so that's in the first interview called What is Reality? And there's a third one that I would also suggest, and it's the principles that drive companies to, in other words, it's how to work with complexity in a, in a more intelligent way. And that's, that's basically drawing on the principles of, of the planet, the principles that have been in, in play for four point something billion years on the planet. And that's the interview I did with Jay Bragdon called Companies That Mimic Life. So seven companies publicly traded who have incorporated the principles of nature into their cultural DNA. So those are three sources I would suggest for everyone. So Colin, thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you, Donna. What I appreciate about this conversation with Colin Price were a couple of things. First of all, the insight on complexity and why that's pressuring people to search for simple so simple solutions. And, and that's in juxtaposition with the reality that complexity does operate by simple pr- principles, but it is not accomplished through oversimplification. So you're looking for easy answers. You actually do have to go deeper, understand those things. I think we've said that. So... My name is Donna Jones. As the host for this program, you'll also find my work on From Insight to Action or through LinkedIn, D-A-W-N-A Jones. I also blog for Great Workplaces in the Huffington Post monthly and have written Decision Making for Dummies, which is really a bridge from the traditional way of making decisions and, and to more of a modern, contemporary, participative approach to decision making. So you'll find that's published by Wiley's. It's in the Classic for Dummies series. My work is largely about consciousness shifting skills so that leaders are equipped for complexity. It's about bringing deep insight into organizational and personal transformation. So I thank you very much for participating and listening in on the program. And I hope that uh, you'll, you'll subscribe to the series. Thank you very much for, for joining me.